ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Indeed all praise is due to Allah and as such we should praise him seek his help seek refuge in Allah from the evil which is within ourselves and the evil which results from our deeds for whomsoever Allah has guided none can misguide and whomsoever Allah has allowed to go astray none can guide and i bear witness that there is no god worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is the last messenger of Allah the muslim teacher as a general principle we can say that the muslim teacher is distinctly different from the teacher who happens to be a muslim this is a distinction that we need to understand a muslim teacher and a teacher who happens to be a muslim A teacher who happens to be a Muslim could be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian. Being a teacher is only a job and it really has no relationship to one's faith. That is a teacher. And a teacher who is a Muslim who happens to be a Muslim will be no different from a teacher who happens to be a buddhist or a hindu or anything else whereas what we want to look at today is the muslim teacher a muslim teacher who is a teacher by choice or a teacher by destiny but they are muslim first they are muslims who happen to be teachers they could have been doctors engineers lawyers home uh, housewives whatever because they're muslim first and because of that there is a fundamental difference between the muslim teacher and the teacher who happens to be a muslim Now if we look historically in Muslim, in the Muslim world from the earliest of days the term used for the teacher was what What's the term used I'm asking you Huh Huh muallim muallim and mudarris you are mentioning right but actually if you go back you will not find these two words in the sunnah you will not find them in the sunnah you will not find them in the quran these are words which came about later what is the word which was used in the quran and in the sunnah for the teacher Hmm? No, Rasul is messenger, one who carried the message. 
Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu said in a hadith found in Ibn Majah, which is authentic. Ad-dunya mal'una. Ad-dunya mal'una. This world is cursed. Illa Illa dhikrullah Except for the remembrance of Allah. وَمَا وَالَا And whatever aids us to remember Allah. وَعَالِمًا وَمُتَعَلِّمًا And the alim and the muta'allim is the student. So, the name for the teacher was alim. So this is the this is the two categories that we had from the time of the Prophet Muhammad the alim and the muta'allim. That was the teacher and the student, because the idea. Pardon. Wama wala. Wama wala. وَعَالِمًا وَمُتَعَلِّمًا Because it was inconceivable that a person would teach without being alim. You can't, what you, as they said in Arabic, فَاقِدُ الشَّيْءِ لَا يُعْطِي The one who has nothing cannot give you anything. So they must have ilm. Ilm is a prerequisite to be a teacher. And the true alim, of course, as the Prophet ﷺ said, خَيْرُكُمْ مَنْ تَعَلَّمَ الْقُرْآنَ وَعَلَّمَ So it is the best, the alim, the true alim is one who not only gains the knowledge, but he teaches others. So this was, this was what was understood. The teacher was an alim, had knowledge, and he passed it on because passing on the knowledge made him better than one who just had the knowledge. That is the true alim. One who learns and teaches. So our terms from the Islamic perspective for the teacher is the alim and the student the muta'allim. Right? So, if we understand that, that first hadith which we mentioned, which is narrated by Abu Huraira, that everything in this world is cursed, except for the remembrance of Allah, what aids us to remember Allah, the teacher and the student. What does that, what, what does that mean about the teacher? Look at the status which on which the Prophet ﷺ has put the teacher. It means this is it means that being a teacher is not just like being a doctor or being an engineer or being anything else. No. Being a teacher is something unique. So unique that the Prophet ﷺ separated it from all the other professions. And in doing so, he elevated it 
to the status of ibadah. He elevated it to the status of ibadah. And when we consider that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had said, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ Only the teachers, the scholar teachers, we could call them scholar teachers, the knowledgeable teachers, the ulama, truly fear Allah from among his servants. This is, this is Allah's statement. The ulama, the scholar teachers, they're the ones who truly fear Allah. Why? Why would Allah say that the ulama are the ones who truly fear Allah? Huh? Yes, because they know who Allah is. The common masses may have knowledge of Allah or may not. Their knowledge may be incomplete. So, with that knowledge which is incomplete, it may lead them not to fear Allah as He deserves to be feared. Because their knowledge is limited. They may end up worshipping other than Allah. So the, the knowledgeable one, the scholar, the teacher, they are in a special status. And this is why Allah said this. And that's why He said also, that's in Surah Fatir, 35th chapter, verse 28. He also said in Surah Az-Zumar, 39th chapter, verse 9, قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِ الَّذِينَ يَعْلَمُونَ وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ Say, are those who know equal to those who don't know? Big difference. There's a big difference between the two. And as such, we find the Prophet ﷺ in another hadith, which is narrated by Ibn Majah, Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood, authentic hadith. He said, إِنَّ فَضْلَ الْعَالِمِ عَلَى الْعَابِدِ كَفَضْلِ الْقَمَرِ لَيْلَةَ الْبَدْرِ عَلَى سَائِرِ الْكَوَاكِبِ The superiority of the learned man, the scholar teacher, over the devout, the abid, the namazi, is like that of the moon over the stars. Is like that of the moon over the stars. So, this position, this position of scholar teacher is unique. So much so that the Prophet ﷺ had said, إِنَّ الْعُلَمَاءُ وَرَثَةُ الْأَنْبِيَاءُ وَإِنَّ الْأَنْبِيَاءُ لَمْ يُرَثُ دِينَارًا وَلَا دِرْهَمًا وَرَثُ الْعِلْمِ فَمَنْ أَخَذَهُ أَخَذَ بِحَظٍ وَافِرٍ The learned scholars, the scholar teachers are heirs of the prophets. The prophets who leave behind neither dirhams nor dinars but leave only knowledge. He who accepts it, has accepted a great good. So, the scholar teacher, the teacher really 
is the inheritor of the prophets. He plays the role of the Rasul, of the messenger. He is carrying the message to people. So the role of teacher in Islam is a sacred role. A role which has been elevated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala above all other professions in human society. Above all other professions in human society. And it is the role of the Prophet ﷺ himself. What was he but a teacher? Conveying the message of Islam and teaching those who accepted it. This was his primary role. So, this is fundamental for us to understand when we consider what is a Muslim teacher. A Muslim teacher is one who has been given the sacred role of conveying the knowledge of Islam, the knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fundamentally to the masses of people. They have been chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from among the community to carry that message, the message of Islam to the community. As such, we can say, for the educational process, there are what we call the three E's. There are three E's for the educational process. The educator, the education, and the educated. The three E's for the educational process. Educator being the scholar-teacher. The education being the material that we're conveying. And the educated being the student who is being taught. So if we look at the educator first, we have to say that there are certain prerequisites for the Muslim teacher. The Muslim scholar teacher. And these can be put together in the acronym I-E-I-A I-E-I-A I Elm Knowledge E Iman Faith I Ikhlas Sincerity And A Amal Salih Righteous Deeds These are the prerequisites of the Muslim scholar teacher. Knowledge first. Elm. Of course, Prophet Muhammad had stressed that Elm gaining knowledge is an obligation on every Muslim. Talabul Elmi Farida ala kulli Muslim. Seeking knowledge is compulsory for every Muslim. So it is a religious obligation, first and foremost, to gain knowledge. So the Muslim teacher must be teaching from knowledge. He should not be teaching from ignorance. 
And when we look at the issues of knowledge, we have to be able to distinguish between what we can call useful knowledge and useless knowledge, correct knowledge and false knowledge. These are different categories. Under knowledge in general, if we were to make a flow chart, under knowledge we have the general heading knowledge. Under it we have two categories, false knowledge and true knowledge. False knowledge and true knowledge. An example of false knowledge, give me an example of false knowledge. Huh? Okay, if we say arguments for the non-existence of God, right? that would be false knowledge. And you have people who have developed a whole line of arguments for it. Why there is no God. Logically, trying to prove there is no God. That is false knowledge. Because it's wrong. Hmm? Darwin's theory of evolution. This is false knowledge. Huh? Freud, yeah, Freud's, well, it's, it's a mixture. Freud's psychiatry, it's a mixture of truth and falsehood. We could say, for example, uh, knowledge which is geared towards finding the cure for death. Isn't this what Western society is obsessed with? Trying to find the cure for death. They feel that if they apply the scientific knowledge they have eventually, they will find the, uh, what they call the clock which is within the different cells, which tells the cells to stop working and die. They will be able to stop that clock. <laughs> this is what, they're searching madly all over the world. People are paying billions of dollars to find this clock. You know, this is false knowledge. Because Prophet ﷺ said, treat your illnesses. Treat your illnesses, right? But don't treat them with what is haram. And know that Allah has sent down, has revealed a cure for every sickness except death. So searching for the cure for death is false knowledge. Right? Then we have true knowledge. Under true knowledge, we have two categories useful and useless right? under true knowledge we have useful and useless can you give me an example of useless knowledge an example of useless knowledge of course in the educational process, as we are exposed to it now, we are taught knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Isn't that? You've heard this phrase before. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge. This is not the Islamic motto. Islamic motto is knowledge for the sake of application. Knowledge for the sake of application. That knowledge is good if it is applicable. Beneficial. It's for the benefit that is in it. So knowledge which has no benefit in it, and this is what the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua. 
اللهم اني اعوذ بك من علم لا ينفع والله I seek refuge from knowledge which is of no benefit so it means there is knowledge which is useless give me an example of useless knowledge you know the hadith <laughs> what is the use of the hadith if we can't apply it huh Huh? Knowledge what? <laughs> Useless knowledge. Give me an example. Cloning you mean? Cloning. No, no, we can't say cloning is useless knowledge. Because it depends on the goals of cloning. If the goal of cloning is to produce, as some people have in their mind, to produce a, another you, right? Which will be for spare parts. When your heart runs out, you can take a heart and put it in, replace it. When your kidney goes, you can take a kidney and replace it. That, of course, that is again false knowledge. This is, this is false knowledge here. Because that other you is not you. If you take, if you manage to take a cell from your body and grow that into a human being, you put it into the womb of a woman and it grows up and you have a human being coming out looking exactly like you. Is that you? No, it's not you. Another spirit has come into that being. So it is not you. So you don't have the right to say, okay, this is my extra body I can take spare parts from. No. You don't have that right. This is another human being. Cloning, where it is, for example, as some scientists make their goal, the ability to produce, for example, insulin. Insulin is something beneficial for us, right? Well, what happens is if they introduce a gene for the production of insulin into a cow, cow's cell, when it is uh, in the embryo in the early stages when it's developing so that the cow when it gives milk insulin is coming in the milk is that something good? something good and to clone that cow because you can't keep doing that process every time it's a very expensive process so once you produce one cow like that to produce more you need to clone that cow so this is where your cloning comes in which is useful it's beneficial so we can't say the science of cloning is itself useless knowledge Right? Useless knowledge. Huh? Flowers? Cloning of flowers? Well, we've been doing this for many, many generations, thousands of years, cloning. No, but I mean, this benefit is it, is, it has beauty. We enjoy the beauty, and Allah has submitted the creatures for us. Now, I'll give you an example of useless knowledge. This is an example of useless knowledge. They send, they spend, you know, billions of dollars sending rocket ships now to Mars, collecting up the dirt on Mars and analyzing it to know the composition of dirt on Mars. Okay? What is the value of that? I'll tell you how it's useless. 
America, who spent $4 billion to do that, has 4 million of its citizens living in the streets. 4 million of its citizens living in the streets. Instead of taking the $4 billion and looking after human members of the society, you're using it to find out the composition of dirt on Mars. No, no. No, no. Don't go from one extreme to the other, right? Don't say simply because we say finding out the composition of dirt on Mars is, means if we re reject that and say that is useless knowledge, we, we are rejecting science altogether. No, no. There's plenty of areas of science that we can use. That knowledge that you're seeking, the composition of dirt on Mars, right? But, but the point is, no, the point is, where is our priority? We have human beings living in the streets, being born and dying in the streets of America, the richest country on the face of the earth. Four million of them. This is reality, I'm not making up a story. Four million living in the streets, dying in winter when the cold comes, frozen to death. They're sleeping in the streets. Yeah, that money could be used to provide food and shelter for them. Why not? Or use scientific development to, to reduce the cost of building homes and everything to provide for your society. You are unable to provide for the needs here and you're talking about going to Mars? This is foolish. No, but the point is, when tomorrow comes, you understand? When we have taken care of the needs of the people here, then we can go and look to there. So, so, so it, it's a question of useless knowledge, as I said. It's not necessarily that the knowledge in of, of itself may be useless, but it is useless in that time. The time can determine whether knowledge is useful or useless because we have to have priorities for knowledge. There must be priorities for knowledge. And human needs, human needs, now should be given priority. It should be given priority. So, going, spending all that money to go to Mars, and really, to be honest, what they're going there for, and they will tell you, is we're trying to find if there was life on Mars. That's what they're going to find out. Because they have rejected the idea of God. And they say that life on earth here is a product of an accident. By chance. So with so many other planets in the universe that must have happened again someplace else. Now they've been sending probes here, there and everywhere trying to find life. They can't find it. They found nothing on the moon. They've sent before to Mars. They've sent to Venus. They've sent to Mercury. Nothing. It seems to be life only here. It is something which is scary for them. Because it brings them back to God. So they're trying to find some life there. If they can find it, they say, ah, that, that uh, reinforces our belief that life on earth was a result of an accident. Since it was an accident, it could repeat itself elsewhere, and we can find it throughout the universe. So we can have, yes, spacemen, space, spaceships, 
you know, little green men and all the other stories that they have, you know. This is, that's what they're going there for. That's what they're analyzing the, the, the soil for. What? No, we, we can't deny that life, Allah could have allowed an, some form of life there. But to mean that you're going to find other human beings walking around or other beings walking around who are conscious beings walking around? No. No. Nowhere else in the universe. Because if there were, Prophet Muhammad would have told us. Huh? Well, yeah, that's true. If we run out of space on the earth and we've used up all the earth, then we can go to the planets. Of course, why not? But have we used up all the space on the earth? If you look at the surface of the earth alone, how much of the earth's surface do human beings occupy? One-tenth. One-tenth of the earth's surface. Yeah, but you know what? It is misplaced ambition. It is misplaced ambition. It is, it is where, where science has been elevated to, to the, the scientists have become really the priests of, of the, the religion of the 20th century. About? About? No, Allah says in the Quran, He has created life that you know and that which you don't know. Yeah. So it's quite possible that we may run into life, forms, you know, bacteria or, you know, little plants or whatever. Yeah, you know, animal type things. But other sentient beings who are able to make choices between good and evil? No. No. Because the Prophet ﷺ has told us about everything that we need to know. And believe me, if there were sentient beings elsewhere who are going to come in contact with us, we need to know that. That's something we need to know. He's told us about Dajjal. He told us about the Gog and the Magog. Ya'juj wa Ma'juj. He's told us about the beast coming out of the earth. He's told us all of this. And he left out telling us that there were some people coming also? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You know? If it is knowledge that we needed to know, and that is, would be knowledge we needed, he would have told us. So, on the basis of that, we assume that that is not going to happen. But, there could be life there. But this is not the... I'm saying, what we're looking at is, should human beings now, in the state of the earth, where there are starving people around the world, starving, who don't even have food, do we have the right to spend billions of dollars to find out the composition of soil on Mars? No. You see, Islam, when it looks at knowledge, its approach to knowledge is, as I said, knowledge for benefit. And human benefit is given priority. Human benefit now, present. Not future down the line. Yes, when the time comes, we deal with that. But when we said, we only occupy one-tenth of the earth's surface, and they have already shown you plans to build cities on the sea, and remember, what portion of the earth's surface is land, and what portion is water? 30% huh? land, 70% water. And we're only occupying one-tenth of the land. Are we running out of space here? <laughs> no way! Hey, by the time we fill up the earth, and there's no place else to live on the earth, that we're going to come to Mars and Moon, that is when... 
they are using a lot of money for family planning. Family planning, yeah. <laughs> okay, this is amongst the things, you know. Or, yeah, this contraception, these things which involve, you know, going against what Allah has uh, revealed for human beings. So, so we have anyway, the point is, a body of knowledge which we may call useless knowledge because it is not beneficial to the society. They may see it, non-Muslims may see it as beneficial. But of course, who determines what is beneficial and what is not? Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's the one who determines what's beneficial and what is not. So we as Muslims, Muslim teachers, have to come from that perspective when we are dealing with knowledge. Studying? Dinosaurs? Archaeology? Lost world. This is archaeology. Archaeology, anthropology. No, that knowledge, that knowledge, this is part of the knowledge of the world in which we live. Right? The knowledge of dinosaurs is not a problem. It's not a problem to know that there were dinosaurs before. We, actually the dinosaurs emphasize and confirm for us something else which we might have been shaky about in our own belief. When you read the hadith in Sahih Bukhari where the Prophet ﷺ said that Adam was how tall? 60 cubits. A cubit is like a meter. 60 meters tall. When Muslim, we believe this, and then non-Muslim hears this, Adam was 60, you feel shy, you know. Why do you explain this to the non-Muslim? Well, the dinosaur is proof of that possibility. Because if you had dinosaurs, like the one they have in the last world, that one that is how many meters long? And its descendants are now little lizards running around only six inches long, Hey, then Adam, 60 meters tall, is not a problem. You understand? So the dinosaur is proof for our own belief in terms of, for our children. And they, can, they feel shy when non-Muslims hear this. They say, how we can explain this? We tell them. The dinosaur, no problem. So it is not harmful knowledge. Then again, some people ask, well, what was the purpose of the dinosaurs? All these dinosaurs, well, we ask ourselves now, that whole age, what is the purpose of that age relative to us today? No, that's, that's their thing. <laughs> that's not our thing, right? Our thing is what? Where did the oil come from? From that age. The people say, what is the purpose of Allah making all of that? And you know, we know there were no humans around as far as they know. No humans around. So what is the purpose of all that life and all that going on? Oil. The oil that we benefit from today came from that age. Right? The rock squashing all those plants and animals and all this now produced the oil that we are now benefiting from. Gasoline, gas and all these different things. So, that's knowledge of our world. Knowledge of our world. We know 
What is the value of it? And that's what we teach. When we teach it, we teach it from that perspective. Not from the perspective of how we evolved from the apes, no. Okay, that's the Darwinian point. We teach it from the perspective of what benefit does it have for us today? You see, this is the greatness of Allah. So, there are many areas of knowledge. We need to know correct knowledge from incorrect knowledge. And we need to know useful from useless knowledge. Then, we have to prioritize knowledge. Knowledge has to be prioritized, which we spoke about earlier. From the Islamic perspective, our knowledge, we prioritize it by in the terms Fard Ain and Fard Kifaya. This is how we prioritize it. Fard Ain and Fard Kifaya. Fard Ain is individual obligatory knowledge. Fard Kifaya is collective obligatory knowledge. Fard Kifaya, for example, is knowledge which the community needs as a whole. If somebody doesn't get this knowledge, then the community as a whole is in sin. But as long as somebody amongst them gets the knowledge, then that obligation is removed. For example, doctors, dentists, engineers. This is Fard Kifaya. As long as somebody gets this knowledge, then the community can function. If nobody gets it, then we have people who are sick, we can't treat the sick, we can't build our homes, we can't... So. Huh? Yes, Salatul Janazah, that is as an act. We're talking about knowledge. But Salatul Janazah in terms of acts, that is considered an act which is Fard Kifaya. Whereas Salatul Fard... You know, the Khamsa Salawat, five times daily prayer, does Fard Ain, right? As this, yeah. But in terms of Fard Ain knowledge, this is like knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Fard Ain. Everybody needs to know who Allah is. Everybody needs to know how to pray five times daily prayer. Everybody, all the five pillars of Islam, we need to have that knowledge. And it becomes Fard'ayn in stages. It becomes according to the need. If you're going to make Hajj, now it's Fard'ayn to know about Hajj. If you weren't going to make Hajj, you're not in a position to make Hajj, it's not Fard'ayn on you. Although in general, yes, you need to know it, but it's not on you then. It becomes whenever the need for that knowledge appears, then it becomes an obligation on you to get it. Right? The second category, that of Iman. We're looking at the IEIA. We looked at Ilm, knowledge. Now we're looking at Iman. And of course, Iman, from the Islamic perspective, involves belief in Allah, His angels, His books, His messengers, last day, the destiny, knowledge of this. Knowledge of it, not merely academic knowledge, but understanding the purpose of this knowledge. What impact should that knowledge have on our behavior? Are the pillars of Iman only pillars that we understand intellectually? Or are they supposed to be reflected in our actions? This is the point. So, 
we should have internalized knowledge of Iman so that we live in accordance with that knowledge for us to be a true and proper Muslim teacher then we should have internalized the pillars of Iman and they become manifest in our behavior for example in the case of where our priorities lie whether we our priority is this world and the things of this world or our priority is the akhirah knowing that there is a day of judgment and a responsibility you know how do we act how do we communicate when we sit down what do we talk about are we only talking about things of this life this world how much salary you're getting the big home you're building back in india you know or the this or the that or the what are we talking about if all of our conversation is about material things then this means our priority is not the akhirah it means our priority is the dunya it is the dunya so it means we've not internalized iman Oh yeah, we know it. If you ask, what are the six pillars of Iman? I can list them. One, two, three, four, five, six. But what impact does it have on my actions? So we talk about the true Muslim teacher. Each of the pillars of Iman has a different effect on us. We should be aware of it and be trying to live the effects of Iman. They should be reflected in our actions. The third principle ikhlas or sincerity again this goes back to the distinction between the Muslim teacher and the teacher who happens to be a Muslim the Muslim teacher is sincere in what he or she is doing because they are teaching for the sake of Allah they believe that the teaching is ibadah right they believe that teaching is a form of ibadah which Allah will reward them for and so they approach teaching from a sincere perspective they don't have to have the head teacher check up on their notes and their you know uh, preparation books and etc you know or they only prepare it when they know the head teacher is coming they quickly make up these so the teacher can say no no because they know that whatever they do, they want to do it to the best of their ability. As the Prophet ﷺ had said, "Inna Allah yuhibbu min ahadikum ida amila amalan an yutqina." Allah loves from each and every one of you that whatever you do, you do it to the best of your ability. Itqan. This should be the motto of the Muslim teacher and student. Itqan. Indeed Allah loves from each and every one of you That whatever you do You do it to the best of your ability So The sincere Muslim teacher Is going to Teach With that element of sincerity They are trying to do their best Their utmost Whether there is somebody around to check on them or not And When that teacher teaches because they're teaching from their hearts then as they say what comes from the heart goes to the heart 
what comes from the mouth goes to the ear in one ear out the other <laughs> right you know so what comes from the heart the students will know if we are really sincere in what we're teaching it will have an impact on them but if we're just doing the job it's 8 to 4 or 8 to 2 or whatever they, they will know it they will know it we'll be looking at our watch every so often <laughs> you know, we'll be teaching and checking our watch all along it's, the students will see it they will realize it our attitudes so ikhlas is a critical principle the fourth principle is that of amal salih righteous deeds that the teacher is in his or her life a reflection of righteous deeds they're trying to do the right thing they're trying to do the right thing whatever Allah has prescribed whatever Allah has asked them to do at least those basic things they're doing they're not standing in front of a class trying to teach the class and they are in fact contravening they are contradicting so many of Allah's instructions they are trying to do at least the basic things which Allah has required we have voluntary additional things but at least the basic things they have taken care of they do represent in their day-to-day -day lives amal salih this is a basic righteous person and that righteousness of course will be manifest in their own talk how they speak to the students how they treat the students favoritism you know which teachers tend to have and you know can we have how do we avoid these things these these bad characteristics of the teacher it is through righteous deeds doing the right thing being conscious of wanting and trying to do what is right, right. now the qualities of the Muslim scholar teacher Muslim educator are many we could say in general studying the life of Prophet Muhammad and his character we have them all embodied but just to look at a few six in fact one I call MSM MSM Muslim teacher on a sacred mission MSM huh? no no the other way around huh? MSM not SMS huh? MSM Muslim on a sacred mission sacred mission right that the teacher is conscious of that mission the legacy of the Prophet that he is or she is trying to bring people out of darkness into light this is a sacred mission to bring them out of darkness of ignorance into the light of knowledge and iman and understanding secondly the teacher should be merciful critical quality of a teacher being merciful as the Prophet ﷺ had said 
He is not of us who does not respect our elders and show mercy to our little ones. Being merciful to children is one of the basic characteristics of a Muslim in general, but a Muslim teacher in particular, because children are put into our hands. Thirdly, justice, being just. So many verses Allah speaks about it, about being just, even if it is against yourselves and your families. This is the way of the Muslim teacher. He or she is just. They don't have the children seeing that you are, you let things go with some students and you punish other students for it. Why? Because these ones you like more than those. No. No. It's injustice. We are just in our dealings. And that's what we're teaching. Because we teach by example, isn't it? That is the uh, sixth principle actually. That the most powerful tool of teaching is the good example. So these are characteristics that we should be an example of to the students. Because they will learn without us saying anything. As they say, actions speak louder than words. That's the bottom line. Care and concern. We should have a sense of care and concern. We should know the names of our students. You know? Many times as a teacher, you have all these classes coming through. You don't have time to even get into their names. You're calling, you there, come here. <laughs> Obviously, it's going to, uh, the student is going to know, right? You know so-and-so's name and you can call them by the name. But many of the students, they can't call them by name. The ones you like, you know their names. The ones you don't care for, you don't know their names. So again, they will feel that there's no care for them. You there. <laughs> you know. So again, very important for us. Know the names of our students. You know. And even be aware of something of their family. I mean in the class, you still get to know the students. Try to build a relationship with the students. So they feel a concern and a care from you. And the fifth principle is preparation. Following the principle... If you fail to plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. <laughs> if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So if you haven't prepared yourself effectively to give your class, then you will not have an effective class. You are in fact ensuring that your class will be ineffective. So planning, we understand it everywhere. Planning in our home situation, planning for the future, planning everywhere. When we come to teaching, we have to have plans too. We should have a plan. And a part of the Muslim plan is in our class, how we can enlighten our children, these students, about Allah. Subtly, of course, we're in an environment here where you're not supposed to be, uh, you know, openly preaching and so on, so on, so on. But we should be trying to reach the students. Actually, well, you all are already teaching Islamic studies per se, right? So, really, this is a point to Muslim teachers in general. That's why I said I wanted this lecture really to be addressing Muslim teachers in general, as opposed to being restricted. Because all Muslim teachers should feel this. 
that they have a responsibility in their lessons, whether they're teaching English or they're teaching mathematics, whatever they're teaching, to give the child something about Allah. Indirectly. Something about Allah should be given. Try to put it in every class. Because that's what we're here for. If we're just going to go through the mechanics of 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 times 2 is 4, and that's all we're doing. This is the point. Then we become like Bahimatul Anam. The animals, the livestock. Eat, drink, marry, procreate, die. We're here for something higher than that. In terms of the education, we should understand that education, as defined by Professor Kerr in his book called Sociology of Education, an anthology of issues and problems. He said, education may be generally defined as society's formal mechanism for the transmission of its culture. That is the essence of education. Transmission of culture. That's what's happening. No matter what subject is being taught, culture is being taught. Well, we as Islamic education teachers, of course, very important to utilize our subject to reach the students, to take them to another level. We don't want to make Islamic uh, education that we're giving them just another academic subject where they have to memorize information, regurgitate it on examination papers. We don't want to make it like that. Our material is material for life. Some modern uh, thinkers felt that rather than calling our subject Islam, Islamic education, we, call, we should call it life studies. Life studies. So they're calling it Islamic education. Because Islamic education implies it's reduced down to just a small... Ca- no, it's about life. Whatever we teach them from aqidah, it's about life, about understanding life. About fiqh, about hadith, about tafsir. It's all about life. So, when we approach education, the educational process, we understand that it's ibadah, we understand that we're teaching about life to the students. And this is what we should try to get across to them. Um, The last point, actually there's some more details in that. Time-wise, we don't have enough. I think we're running out of time now. Um, I would just say that under the general heading of education, we have to look at the material we're teaching and try to find the most effective material. If what we have doesn't do the job, then we should feel concerned to find other sources rather than just taking whatever has been given to us and doing whatever was done before. Also, the environment that we're teaching in, the classroom environment, we have to make our class something which is loved by the students. You know, when I taught in uh, Manart Riyadh schools where the books of Islamic studies were produced, and I taught there for almost 10 years, 
high school, junior high school, Islamic studies. What I found whilst I was there at Manatriad, and it's an English medium school, they had Arabic taught as a subject, that when the when a survey was done among the students to find out what were their favorite subjects, they found that the most hated subject was Arabic and Quran. Astaghfirullah. It was the most hated subject. This was at a school which was supposed to be Islamic school. <laughs> you understand? Islamic school, most hated subject. Arabic and Quran. The other subjects, uh, mathematics, biology, and all this, these teachers were teachers that they brought from America and the UK. Non-Muslims. They were their favorite subjects. Fortunately, at least on the higher level where I was teaching, my subject was amongst one of the top favorites. You know, Because of how I approached the students. What my relationship was with the students. Giving them a chance to question relating the subject to life they felt like I was a sounding board if they were having problems at home whatever they could come to me and ask me with them you know so I created that relationship with them so my subject became popular but outside of my the rest of the classes that were being taught Arabic Quran Islamic studies on the Lord were the most hated subjects why because people were teaching again in an environment of strict academics. You have to force the children, they have to memorize this, they have to do this, and so on, so beating and all this. You know. Even the non Muslim teachers were not hitting any students, but the Arabic teachers were known to be hitting kids left and right. Astaghfirullah. <laughs> Quran beating kids, you know what I'm saying? Even now, even till today, I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking, really. I have two of my sons, I sent them to what was supposed to have been the best Tahfiz Quran school. I sent them in, in Dubai. They went and they studied there. But really, though they both memorized the Quran, the school created a dislike for the Quran in their hearts. I had to fight after they graduated, memorized Quran, to try to bring back a love and a care for the Quran. Because they were beaten. Oh, this is the way. All the teachers beating all the students to learn the Quran. What is this? What is the point? Students graduate and memorize the Quran, they hate it. In fact, we find in, in the UK, I was dealing with one of the teachers, uh, one of the brothers who does work in the prisons in the northern part of the UK, in Bradford, Birmingham, northern part. And he said, in the prisons across the north, and he visits them, there is a half of or at least one or two in every prison. Half with Quran. <laughs> in the prison. <laughs> he had learned the Quran, he was forced to memorize it as a kid, had no impact on him. He became a criminal, and there he ended up in prison. Because of how we're teaching. The way, the feeling, the, the love, the environment is a bad environment. So what can we give them? We're not going to create in them a love for Islam, for, for Arabic, for Quran. We're not going to be able to create it unless we develop 
and, and make an environment where the children feel that this is fun, they're enjoying, the teacher cares for them, the material is something that they are benefiting from, it gives them insight, causes them to think, to question, all of these things. So the education environment is critical. And also, our teaching methodology. How do we teach them? As we said, are we beating, are we shouting, are we screaming, are we, you know. So we have to create that proper environment using the methods which are acceptable and, and beneficial. Educative methods are known to be successful. And so that means that we should also be up on the latest developments in education, you know, because people have made it a science, studying how to teach. So we should take from that. We shouldn't feel, oh, these are kafirs, you know. So they had these ideas, you know, this is not, you know, we go back to madrasa, madrasa is our way. No, no. We have to look at the madrasa method. Has the madrasa method produced what it was supposed to produce? It failed. It supplied and it did a job in a time when our countries were threatened by Western education, which meant canceling people's Islam making them Christians and also we kept our children away, we developed madrasas to put them in instead. It served a purpose, not say it didn't have any purpose, but today the madrasa is obsolete. It's producing cripples, people who come out of the madrasa and the only way that they can survive, and who goes into the madrasa, who goes to be studying is to be maulana, this is the worst, if he can't succeed in mathematics, anything else, okay, stick him in Islamic studies. The worst! So naturally, what is coming out of those schools? The worst. Yes. You know, unfortunately. So that whole approach is today a harmful approach. In the early days when it was developed, it had a useful benefit. It was, you know, but today it is now, it has grown into a monster. Creating cripples, cripples in the society. Religious cripples who live off the society. You know, a man came to Omar radiallahu anhu and he said, this is in Al-Muatta, I love you for the sake of Allah. I love you for the sake of Allah. Prophet said, if you love somebody, you should tell them. He said, I love you for the sake of Allah. And Omar replied, I hate you for the sake of Allah. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why would you want to say that? He said, because you exaggerate in your adhan he was a muadhin and you take money for it because you exaggerate in your adhan Allah Akbar distorting Allah's name it's not to say you can't beautify but there are limits don't turn it into a sing song and take money for it. Omar said, I hate you for the sake of Allah. But today, that's a norm. It's an acceptable norm. You know? You understand what I'm saying? So this is where, this is where we have come, right? This is where we have come. And of course, in closing, I would just say, we should also be aware of what it is we're trying to produce. That student that we're trying to teach, what is he supposed to be? We say the aim of Islamic education is to produce a student conscious of his or her need to worship Allah. His or her goal in life being paradise. 
motivated to implement the divine commandments and capable of fulfilling his or her social responsibility in a morally sound way. This is what we're going, this is what we're looking for. Not somebody who just memorized some verses of the Quran, memorized some hadiths, knows some Arabic. This is not what we're trying to produce. But somebody who is conscious of the need to worship Allah. There's a fear of Allah in their heart. They are aware of their goal being paradise, not this world. And they're motivated to fulfill Allah's commandments in their lives. And they're capable, because of course they live in a society, they're capable of fulfilling their social responsibilities to family, to children, to community, etc. in a morally sound way. They come out with a clear consciousness, a clear awareness of right and wrong according to Islam, according to what Allah has revealed. This is what we're trying to produce. So these points basically, I hope that they stimulate some thought on your part. And actually, um, you should have an opportunity to ask some questions on what you've what we've covered so far. I don't know whether time allows us. What is our situation now? What time? Huh? Uh-huh. Okay, so if, we, if you wish now, you want to ask some questions, you know, we can... Uh, Well, the hadith, brother's question is the hadith talabul ilm, farida, to be applied just to Islamic knowledge or is it to knowledge in general? Well, no, it is to knowledge in general. But priority is Islamic knowledge. Knowledge which benefits in both this life and the next. So it is priority. First and foremost, we say, where do we start? It's knowledge of Allah. But the other knowledge is included. Seeking knowledge which will benefit our societies, fulfilling the needs of our communities, etc. This is also a part of the knowledge which is obligatory on us. If somebody, but we said that was fard kifaya. You see, we have revealed knowledge and we have deduced revealed knowledge. Revealed knowledge, this is from revelation, Quran, Sunnah. Deduced revealed knowledge is science you know, uh, medicine, all the different fields, that is revealed knowledge also. Because, Adam was taught the names of all things, categorizing. This is how we extract knowledge, to be able to categorize things, put them in their categories correctly, and to be able to deduce from that knowledge. So that, that deduced knowledge, deduced, yes, we have deduced the knowledge. From looking at a tree, we deduce how it functions. That means the knowledge of gardening, how to give the water. How, oh, we've deduced it from observing what is there. But these rules which govern the plant, where does it ultimately come from? From Allah. And when you actually look into many of the sciences, you look at the great discoveries of science, you will find most of them were a product of? No. Accident. You know? You look at Madame Curie, who developed the X-rays. 
right? Which is, you can't function in medicine even without x-rays. How did she discover? By accident. She's in her lab doing some tests over here. Some radium was in the corner. Some, some uh, a reel of, of, uh, of film was hanging. And her hand passed between the radium and on the film. She saw the bones of her hand. The discovery of x-rays by accident. And many, if not most, of the major discoveries are by quote-unquote accident. We know meaning what? By Allah. Allah revealed it to them. And this is to show them, really. If they stop and think, you know, they laugh about it. It was by accident. Isaac Newton, apple hitting him on the head. You know, <laughs> but it's something that they laugh about. You know, or they still feel that science is so great. But they don't stop to think. These are science from Allah to them. That, hey, this knowledge is coming ultimately from Allah. So we call it the deduced knowledge. And it is also revealed. So all of it... Uh, we are obliged to seek but prioritizing Islamic knowledge that is priority okay B before we go outside of the topic let's see if there are any more first on the topic on the topic pardon Can we divide knowledge into Islamic and non-Islamic? Well, you could, but, we, but I wouldn't say non-Islamic. You see, because then we are—we don't want to get caught in in the same, huh? Secular, secular knowledge, material knowledge. No, because if you say Islamic and material knowledge, then you are implying that the material knowledge is not Islamic. It's un-Islamic. Isn't it? Is that you implying that? If you say this is Islamic knowledge, this is material knowledge, then that means that it's not, this is un-Islamic. Because if it were Islamic, then you would have put it with Islamic knowledge. What we want to teach the children. No, no. I said it is deduced revealed knowledge. Deduced revealed knowledge. Meaning that we have put our brains and extracted this knowledge. It didn't come in the book of Revelation to us. But it was still revealed. And that's how we want to teach the students. We want to, don't let them think that there is Islamic knowledge on one end, and then there is this other knowledge on the other hand. You know? This Islamic knowledge, well, this is for your religious. But if you want to succeed, you better get this knowledge here. This is that, that other knowledge. No, no. It's all one. It's all one. We teach them it's all one. Only this one was revealed in books of revelation brought by the prophets. Whereas this one was revealed by Allah. We teach him from that perspective. But we deduced it. Allah has revealed it to us indirectly. So we try to keep knowledge. This is what they call the holistic view of knowledge. Holistic as a whole. We don't separate it up into compartments. But even that whole, we have to look at priorities within the whole, of course. There's no harm in that. But we look at it as a whole. Right? As long as it is knowledge, which is real knowledge, true knowledge. The false knowledge is not a part of this whole. That is something else. It's outside. This is from Satan. The false knowledge is from Satan. 
True knowledge is from Allah. Whether it is useful or useless, it is still from Allah. Knowledge of the composition of sand on, on Mars, is, this is still from Allah. Right? If we are able to find it out, it's from Allah. But it's just useless. It's not beneficial now. It's not the time for it. Further question? Muslim teacher. See, the, the issue of uh, questioning, again, this is very important. You know, we know, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask those who know if you don't know. You see, the thing is that the greater part of learning is in questioning. You know? So, I mean, you all, being teachers yourself, should be, I should be having to tell you, no, we don't have any more questions here. You, you don't have enough time for all your questions. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? You want to motivate the children that they will ask questions. Yeah. Tahara. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Mm. Okay, yeah, brother, uh, mentioning that um, some of the teachers feel some objection to the teaching of uh, menses, the rules concerning menses, tahara, uh, which is purification, how one purifies oneself, cleans oneself. That the, yeah. But you're just saying that uh, some mentioned that some teachers feel some objection to it. That teaching it in class and that is, you know, to the girls is not... Uh... Yeah, of course that knowledge, yeah, of course the knowledge should come at the age when it is relevant. I mean to teach, you know, six, seven year old kids about... It's not necessary because it's not relevant to them. Yes. Yeah, but once they reach Yeah, in the 12 years they should, by the 12th year they should have that knowledge because they're on the border because um, People get menses all the way down to the age of nine. You know, so from the time they reach that period, they should be aware. So that if it happens for them, they're aware of what, it's, what is the principles behind it, etc. Well, you know, in terms of Hadath al-Akbar, 
we don't need to go into sexual relations you know huh janaba that's what i'm saying you know unless mentality yes of the teachers but you know the thing is like something like that it is true that you know you um, at least from the Islamic studies perspective that where their students are some distance away from those things you know there's years before they're gonna be married and come into the situation of knowing that then it's better to to focus on the other areas that are more critical for them you know, leave out the areas which are less critical and focus on the areas which are most critical. I mean, this is a, a judgment that you have to make, you know. And um, I mean, there's so many other things uh, regarding uh, tahara and salah and things related to it that need to be stressed or need to be understood that we don't need to make that an issue, really. I feel it's good. I mean, even if you notice in my grade 7 book, you know, when we go into, because grade 7, I don't go into those details, I, I leave it, you know. I do mention about, you know, hadith and so on and so on, but I leave that area because at that age, you know, it was not an age where the students are uh, ready for it. And we also continued to grade 12, so I knew there was a time when we can go into it. I think one of the things that maybe the school suffers from is the fact that, um, educa- you know, Islamic studies uh, stops at grade 8. At your eighth standard, why it doesn't go to the end? You know, yeah, this is this is this is this is an issue. This is the this is a big issue because why should because you see because the view towards Islamic education is such that it is not that important, so we can drop it after grade eight or grade seven. Yeah, we can drop it after, but this is not this is not the correct view. Because again, they're looking at it as Islamic studies. If they looked at it as we said, as life studies, life studies, then of course you need life studies till you graduate. And that's what Islamic studies really is life studies. Yes. Yeah. Any other question on uh, Muslim teacher and. Okay, you want to ask your question now? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, Allah makes reference to Mal wal Banun, you know, the wealth and children as being among the adornments or decorations or beautification of this life. And then he refers to your wealth, your wives, and your children as being enemy. Fahdaruhum. An enemy for you, so beware of them. <laughs> Even stronger than fitna, he says an enemy for you. Your wives, husbands, because he used to use innamin azwajikum. So that could be both your husband or your wife. So from in your husbands and your wives, 
and your wealth and your children an enemy for you. Now, when this verse was mentioned to Ibn Abbas, and they asked him what was this verse in, in reference to, he explained that there were people who had accepted Islam in Mecca. And when the time for Hijra came, when the time for Hijra to Medina came, and everybody was going making Hijra to Medina, their wives and children stopped them from making Hijra. Right? Discouraged them. No, no, we can't go. Our family are in all the kind of excuses. No, we shouldn't. Our money is here and all this. So they didn't make the Hijra then. Later on when they made the Hijra to Medina, and they found that those who had made Hijra in the first place, they had learned so much and their understanding of Islam and the practices, and they realized how much they missed. They wanted to punish their wives and their children. So Allah revealed the verse. It was a test. It's part of the test. Okay? So this was what it is. That, that the, the, the fitna or the, or the test or the trial, it comes in your love for them. That for example, you may love your husband, right? Your husband has worked late at night. And in the morning for Salat al-Fajr, he's tired. But you know he should be praying in the masjid. But your love for him, you say, no, let him sleep. But you see, in this love here, it has led you to evil. You now who were responsible to get him up since you are up and he wasn't he's excused, he's fast asleep he doesn't know, you know you're excused by sleep right? but you who are awake who should have gotten him up and you didn't you are now in sin that's why Prophet ﷺ had said blessed is the woman who sprinkles water on her husband and gets him up with prayer you know? so instead of seeking to please Allah you sought to please your husband so there comes the danger. The husband, your love for your husband can cause you to disobey Allah. Or your children, they want to do something. You know it's haram, not allowed really in Islam. But they're begging you, oh mommy, you know, please let us, we want to, all our friends have this and they're all there, they're doing. So you say, okay, okay, inshallah. This is the, this is the danger, this is the fitna. You know? I mean, if you just even look at the way we clothe our children, because of the impact of Western civilization, you see now our little girls wearing tight clothes, exposing, you know, we say, oh, they're just little kids. But what are we raising them? And what idea? What idea are we raising? How are we raising these children? Where the idea of exposing aura is okay. No problem. They're little kids. And then you read in the society about adults raping little kids. You wonder, how, where did that come from? You've raised the kids like this. You are exposing them. You have people with sick minds and this them, and then they see this and it affects them. And so we are contributing to it. You know. So the thing is about family. Same thing with wives and husbands. You know, your husband, for example, he smokes cigarettes, and you know, smoking cigarettes is haram. And he says, go to the shop and get me some cigarettes, please. Dear, your husband is requesting you. You love your husband. But to go and buy cigarettes, bring it for him. It is haram for you to buy it. Haram for you to carry it. Haram for you to give it to him. And you do it out of your love for him. So this is fitna.
So, this is the intent from the verse. The Islamic studies. Maybe you could uh, you, you couldn't type it up for me, so I don't have to struggle through people's handwriting. Today I wanted to get what the issues and the problems were. To direct the discussion, you know, so we can look at it point by point. Teachers' aids, things that you can do to yeah. improve. Even in views on that. Hmm. Uh, not necessarily as Dr. Bilal, he's the author, he's coming, so you just say, no, if you find any positive or negative remarks, you can, and we discuss it. Hmm. And you know, then it will be clear about What was not understood from the book? Yeah. What was unclear? How to present a particular topic? Maybe you are teaching it to people, children, at an age that it wasn't pre- prepared for. Yeah. You know, I think you're teaching it for younger students. So how do you get these ideas across which are much more complex 